Welcome to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. This is a podcast where we explore how the best B2B sales leaders make the complex simple, drive relationships and revenue, and generally elevate the sales profession. In this podcast, we're bringing together sales experts, thought leaders, top account executives, buyers, industry insiders, all to share their experiences and best practices for navigating the complex sales cycle. So whether you're a seasoned sales professional, a sales leader, or just starting out, you're gonna find practical insights and actionable advice that you can apply to your own sales journey. Plus, we have a bit of fun. You know someone in sales today you would just consider a grinder. They know how to pick up the phone, get to work, and make their own lunch money. Carrie Richardson is that and more. I'm honored to have her tell her story with us on the art and science of complex sales. From selling vacuums door-to-door to a fitness trainer to a Muay Thai fighter to successfully owning and operating two of the top sales call center operations in North America, Carrie shares her inspirational story with us today. Her grit, ingenuity, and perseverance has changed lives for the better. Make sure to stay to the end where she makes an announcement about her next move in this fascinating walk. So let's get rolling. Carrie Lynn Richardson, welcome to the podcast. How the heck are you? I'm great. I feel like I was just here five minutes ago. <laughs> I don't know why on earth you'd feel that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I, uh, I always appreciate uh, being invited to share my story. Yeah, and truth be told, everybody, this is uh, we get to do two takes in a row, and it's actually going to be a lot of fun because uh, we had we had the uh, podcast crap out on us on the last one. So we about got about halfway through, and one of the things I definitely want to dive into though is I love having you on because I can't wait to this get this gets posted on social media because your LinkedIn presence is just absolutely badass. So I got to give you props for that. Oh, thanks. I wish I could take all the credit for it. But we worked with a uh, branding agency out of Michigan called Dexia. And we worked with them to define our archetype. And then we worked with them on a strategy. And they essentially said that our our anti-hero archetype was different than most organizations because they they wanted us to be the brand. So normally you would create a process and the process would be the thing that people buy not the people, because if people, if, if your clients are buying you, you can't ever sell your business because everyone wants to talk to Carrie, wants to talk to Carrie. And so a couple of years before I sold my last business, I got my name off the website. I got my face off the website. I started pushing everything over to other people. But in this case, they said, since that's not what you're planning to do, like this is your last rodeo and you guys are the brand, we want pictures of you everywhere nice pictures, professional pictures, like you have to look glamorous, you have to look like you're having a good time. And I mean, obviously, that was no problem for us. Um, <laughs> so is it they like we want pe- like, people should want to hang out with you and they should want to know how can they do that all the time? And how are you in these cool places? And why are you doing all this cool stuff? And how do you run your business while you do all that? People should want to be really curious about how could I do that? How, how come my business has me sitting at my desk for 15 hours a day? And these two two are all over the world and driving around in a van and you know, like that's what they they were going for. So I think that we did that really well, but we really have to give uh, props to to Adam Bird and the team over at Dexia. They were uh, they were fantastic. Well, they killed it. They killed it because actually, I do wonder that. Like, I do absolutely wonder that, and that's one of the reasons uh, you're on is because I I absolutely love that presence. But I I've had a chance to to, to talk with Ian a fair bit. By the way, Dexia, one of the best things that you did was you had a picture of him with this this poppin' red watch on. And for some reason, that just absolutely uh, sticks out in my memory. Like a picture, it was both of you together, and he's got this red watch on. And I'm like, I'm not a watch guy, but that's really dang cool. That is a Hublot made with the same paint that they paint Ferraris with or something. I don't know. I bought it for Ian after I sold my business. Yeah. And it was a present and I went into the store and I pronounced it Hublot and they didn't even correct me. They <laughs> happily it. took my money and they let me pronounce it that way the <laughs> whole time. And what I wanted them to do was deliver it to dinner. Like we were having dinner that night. I'm like, can you have someone bring it over and like just bring it with the, the check at dinner? And they're like, we can't take a $30,000 watch to a restaurant. No, like you're going to have to come in. So we, uh, we actually had gone, we were in Las Vegas and uh, he was admiring it in the window of a different store. And we went in there like, no, 
they're unavailable. And I was like, well, could you call some of the other stores? And we were dressed kind of schlubby, you know, yeah. just gone to the gym or something. They're like, no, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And then we saw it in the, uh, this is a great sales story for people. We saw it in the window of the Hublot at Caesars. And that we went in and they're like, can we help you? Would you like some water? Would you like to look at this? Can we show you anything else? And uh, I guarantee you, if we ever buy another fancy watch, we're going right back to see Carmen at uh, the Hublot at Caesars. But that was a super day. I love that day. That, that sounds like a good day. That's like it's a good day uh, for Ian, a, too. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a good day all around. Like that's a business sold, a nice watch. And, uh, and it, tell me a little bit about why that was a good sales experience and how that ties into your definition of sales. Well, this is not pr- so don't cherry pick, right? Don't prejudge. Mm-hmm. Don't let um, I like to let people tell me that they're not interested. I'm not going to assume that they aren't interested. And I know that I mean, as a telemarketer, my background is in telemarketing. You can go through your leads list and like kind of recognize it and like, oh, Deloitte, no, they're not going to take my call. Or like you can go through all these like, oh, they're not going to talk to me. Like, no, everybody is going to talk to me. I'm going to call all of them. If it's on the list, I'm going to call it. And that was one of the best things about running a telemarketing agency with employees that weren't necessarily career focused, right? They, they didn't know what Deloitte did. They just knew Deloitte was on the list and they had to call them. Yeah. So there wasn't all there wasn't all the the re, they didn't spend thirty minutes researching who the CRO of XYZ software company is. Like, no, is it on the list? Call them, deliver the message, do your objection handling, schedule an appointment. Right? Like they had no idea who most of the companies that they were calling were or what they even did, and they didn't care. All they knew is they had a goal to hit, and they were going to call everybody on the list. And if they didn't call everybody on the list. They were going to get canceled. <laughs> so, well, that's a great. I, I mean, there's a huge lesson to be learned there, right? It's it's you got to set aside any sort of fear and prejudgment and dive in and understand, right? And uh, let's let's start at the beginning of carry and sales. How did you? You said you're in telemarketing. You said you had some a couple of companies. I mean, we got some we got some foreshadowing here. We got some ground to cover. We got some ground to cover. <laughs> uh, so tell me tell me the beginning. Well, let's uh, let's wind back to like way back in the day. Uh, I mean, I was an alcoholic by the time I was 16. And I think if you like, I'm not very private about that. Um, mm-hmm. I needed to get sober around 16, 17, and I got sober in my 30s. So, you know, with that challenge uh, came employment challenges, right? It was mm-hmm. it's hard to get up in the morning when you throw back 20 ounces of vodka the night before. So there's a lot of times where I just didn't bother going into work the next day. But what yeah. I found was that if you were in sales, that didn't really matter. As long as you were hitting your numbers, your bosses would put up with all kinds of crap. Uh, so yeah, this is the place for me. <laughs> I uh, started telemarketing. That was my second uh, foray into sales. My first was selling vacuum cleaners door to door in a cold okay. Canadian city. <laughs> and uh, eventually, I got tired of being cold all the time and uh, moved to an indoor job. But I. That was my first intro to sales. And I had a great leader there. Like I can remember like this guy was super motivating. It was very much like rah, rah, Tony Robbins, commit to can I, constant and never ending improvement. And what can you do today to be better than you were yesterday? And I like ate that shit up. I loved it. And we'd get in our cars and we'd like drive to the appointment. And I mean, you didn't win every day, but I was kind of a legend by the time I left there because I had like this closing thing that I used to do at the end of the the presentation, you know, and you vacuum, you can clean their whole house. And I was like, you're cleaning these people's houses. And if they didn't buy at the end, I was mad, right? Like they had this clean house. And why aren't you buying this $1,500 vacuum cleaner? And like now I don't think I even own a vacuum cleaner, but there's no way I'd buy a $1,500 vacuum cleaner, no matter how good the sales presentation was. I probably wouldn't even let them in my house. But at this time, you know, it was a different time. People yeah. were, were less anxious. And uh, at the end of it, you'd have this big pile of dirt. And the mm-hmm. filter queen didn't have like a filter, right? That's what they were famous for. You didn't have to buy filters. So you take the thing and you, you tip it over and you put all the dirt. Like first you use their vacuum. You clean their floor with their vacuum. And then you clean it with the filter queen and it picks up all the stuff. And then you turn it out onto the carpet. And you just sit there looking at it for a while. And then... You start talking to them about like, oh my God, how can you, how can you live with all this filth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
me, I've got enough hair on the floor here to build a whole <laughs> new dog. But so I was uh, like, I became legendary when I was presenting to this, this elderly woman. And she, she said, no, she wasn't going to buy it. And she had a, a daughter who just had a new baby. And I'm trying to push all the buttons, right? Like, oh, your, ba- your, your grandchild's going to crawl through all this. You're okay with that? <sighs> and then I just like took my foot and I started rubbing the dirt back into the carpet. Oh. And she like, she, she's losing her mind. It's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you don't care that it's there. So I'm putting it back. Like, what? You thought I was going to, I'm not taking it with me. And she threw me out of her house. And I go back to the office and I was like, oh, I thought I was going to get that one, you know, like, oh, too bad. And the next day she called in and she bought two, one for her oh house, and one for her daughter's house. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that poor woman. I don't imagine she's still with us today, but. Uh, oh, that was- is a. Uh, so you, you came from a school of let's go get the deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very much like this happened. I win. And you lose, right? Like that was mm-hmm. my original introduction to sales. It wasn't like we win together, right? If I think about what I would consider selling today, and we talked about this a little bit on take one, like yeah, I believe that sales are two people solving a problem together. It's collaborative and it has to work for everyone or it doesn't work for anyone, right? Like you can't, you have to solve the problem I brought to you, first of all, like the one thing I hate the most about sales is when somebody comes to me and suggests a problem that I, sh- I might be having or should be having, right? Like you, you know, you know, don't you hate it when blah, blah, blah. Like, no, I'm not experiencing that or mm-hmm. coming to me. Like I come to you with a problem and you're like, have you considered X, Y, and Z? Like, no, I haven't, but thanks for giving me three more problems to worry about. Right? <laughs> like this was the thing that I was trying to solve. Can we solve this please? Right? Like that's what I like to do in sales. Like, all right, you bring me the problem. I'm going to come up with like 10 ways that the thing that I sell can help you solve that problem. I don't need to give you new problems, extra problems. Like maybe extra we'll talk problem. about those another time. But if I come to you with a problem, I want you to solve the problem I brought to you. I don't, I don't want you to suggest six other things that your thing does. Like, I don't care about those things. If I cared about them, I'd have called you and asked you about them. Well, see, here's something that's really interesting in that, in what you say there, like it's because you have to develop a relationship somewhere right and salespeople that expand the problem before they understand the key one that's on their mind the priority that's right here and now you don't have a right to expand the problem before you ex- before you understand the here and now right it's my is is general by what i see in best practices it's like people as long as you go in and understand the narrow you you then get the opportunity down the line maybe it's in the same sales cycle maybe it's a, to to understand the broader. I mean, my business that makes to consumer sense? was very different from, you know, business to business. I went from vacuum cleaners to the long distance telephone service to whatever I bounced around, right? Like mm-hmm. as long as I was hitting my numbers, I could do whatever I wanted. That's why they needed it out of a job. I wasn't career focused. I wasn't thinking three career moves ahead. Now I didn't graduate from university daydreaming of my glorious telemarketing career that I was about to go into. Mm-hmm. I really just needed to pay my bills. Yep. And sales was a way for me to do that. And it enabled me to have the lifestyle that I wanted, right? The harder I worked, the more money I made. And then I started getting to the point where I was like, wait a minute, if I hit my quota by Tuesday, why do I have to stay here till Friday? That doesn't make sense to me. That's kind mm-hmm. of how I ended up in entrepreneurship, right? Like, uh, why? Like, uh, I've already done what you've asked me to do. I'm done. Give me my paycheck. Let me leave. I don't, I don't need the rest of it. I don't want it. Uh, so, so you go from vacuum cleaners to you're, then you're working inside at call centers and you're still, still struggling with, with alcoholism. Yeah. And it's, you're just selling enough to make it Well, you, you're succeeding obviously at every job you go to, but it's just long enough to make it until the next job. Is that my, yeah, you pretty right? much fail upwards, right? Like I hit my numbers for seven or eight, nine months. And then I look for a place that's got a higher base because I know I'm going to get fired soon because I'm unreliable, regardless of whether or not I'm hitting my numbers consistently. You mm-hmm. can't let somebody not come to work for weeks at a time. It's going to ruin your entire sales department. Like I wouldn't allow yeah. that to happen in my sales team now. But back in the day, you could get away with a lot more. Plus, you could go out for lunch in the middle of the day and get hammered with your clients back then. 
sales was glorious uh, until it wasn't. And it wasn't like I uh, woke up one day and thought, gee, today's the day I quit drinking. You know, I woke up and I was mm-hmm. like, all right, we're three interventions in here and uh, everything is the worst. And I, I can't imagine what the rest of my life is going to look like. And I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, I started going to a 12 step program mm-hmm. and I did outpatient rehab and I did uh, you know cold turkey detox. And that was not pleasant. And afterwards, I couldn't go back into sales. I right? like sales was something that I associated very, very closely with alcoholism, like everybody drank in the, by that time I was selling uh, enterprise software, right? I failed my way up to enterprise software and, you know, end of quarter, everybody's like drinking in the office. Nobody's going home. And I could not go back to that life again. So I I became, um, I became a personal trainer. I had lost a hundred pounds between 2000 and 2002, like a pound a week, every week for a hundred weeks. Oh my gosh. Exactly the way they say you're supposed to do it, which uh, was interesting considering I'm not really a rule follower, but I ate nothing but egg white omelets and salads and protein bars. And I started playing sports and my whole life really started changing at that point, right? I'd taken off all that drinking puts on a lot of weight. So Mm -hmm. I had quit drinking for that two year period as well. And I worked with a personal trainer and I remember like, I loved this guy. He was super motivational and I looked forward to seeing him and I I trained, you know, two, three times a week and I played sports five-ish times a week. Started playing squash. I got really good at it. I started playing tournaments. It wasn't enough to keep me sober, but it was definitely enough to keep me out of trouble more often than not. And so when I got sober, I thought, well, okay, well, what am I going to do now? And so I became uh, a personal trainer. And I started by working at a gym. Uh, they paid me eight bucks an hour, which was quite humbling after being in enterprise sales. You know, I'd yeah. been making a nice six-figure salary, and I was living in Toronto. And then I now I'm making eight bucks an hour, and I have to be at the gym at four o'clock in the morning to clean stuff. Now, very humbling. But I also was broke and pretty much willing to do anything to meet this goal, which was to, uh, they paid for my certifications, they paid for all my training. So I worked at this gym. And in exchange, I became a certified fitness instructor, personal trainer and yoga instructor. And now I still uh, have my yoga certs and I travel all over the world for free. So I go and teach yoga at luxury resorts all over the world, in exchange for teaching yoga. So like in the middle of all this where I was like, stupid job, cleaning stuff. Like I didn't realize like what it was setting me up for was free vacations for the rest of my life. (laughs) So uh, a good lesson there is like every time I thought that like something terrible was happening to me, something really interesting was about to happen. So I have a, I had a great mentor that once, once put the line out, that's just coming to my head, which is like effort never goes to waste. Like you don't know, especially when it's put towards, you know, something self-improvement and that you never know where it's going to go. Uh, yeah, right? I had but a great it, mentor it, as well. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Just that, that is such a cool story. <laughs> like you just going in there and being able to do that now, that is, that is fantastic. Um, so you're, you're working at, you're working at the gym, you're getting all these certifications, uh, you're kicking butt with that at $8 an hour. Yeah. But at, where do you get back into, where do you get back into sales? Like, how is this, uh, is that at the gym? So the gym asks me, will I cover a shift for somebody selling personal training? They're going to go back to the, the country that they grew up in for six weeks. And would I cover the, the six week period for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they knew from my resume that I'd had training experience. And the gym that I worked at, like, was fully aware of my recovery because, you know, I had commitments that I had to keep all the, like, I have to go to meetings and I have to go yep. to outpatient and I have to do all this other stuff. And they were very accommodating very supportive. It was a great organization to work for. So I'm like, yeah, of course I'll do that. And I sold like more personal training in a week than the normal person would sell in a month. And I did that every week consistently for six weeks. And then they, the manager pulled me in and asked me, would I go work at one of their other gyms? Like the, the, like the really high end one. And would I be Mm -hmm. interested in membership sales there? And uh, the base was like 55 you know, compared to the eight bucks an hour that I was making, that seemed like, I mean, it still wasn't what I was making before, but like I could live on that in Toronto. So yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Of course. I did not last a month at that job. I did not like it. <laughs> really? 
like it just wasn't it wasn't for me like it was very like you have to do it this way mm-hmm. and that way wasn't my way it wasn't me right like i wasn't the put on a suit and walk around the gym and ask questions about like no nah, like, you want to work out want to get fit here we are let's do it right like i really wasn't the right fit for that particular kind of selling uh, it turns out I'm a grinder, right? Like I like the phone. I just, I want to, yeah. I want to hunt. I want to hunt. I want to hunt. I don't want to go for lunch. I don't want to have long drawn out sales cycles. I just want to find the opportunity. Someone else can do the rest of it. How did you uh, take that then and, and find the next step? So you don't last there for, you, you no, say, I no, quit. I don't want to do this. <laughs> yeah. You quit. They and wouldn't then, give me back my shitty $8 an hour job either. They're like, no, sorry. We already hired someone for that. So now I'm unemployed again. Oh. Um, and then I started personal training. Like I was uh, already, like I was already certified. So I started, yeah. I started my own little personal training thing. Challenge with that, of course, is to make any money, you have to, there's only like, you have to do split shifts, right? So you work from like 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. Then you got all this dead time and then people want to work out again, you know, 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. Turns out that I really like to exercise, but I don't really like to encourage people who don't really want to, right? Like, <laughs> I want to work with elite athletes and people who are super committed to losing a lot of weight and that's it nothing in between like if you just want to show up pick up and put down weights once a week i'm not the trainer for you and yeah. i ended up um i wanted to learn how to how to box because they had boxing classes at this gym but it was like a high end fancy gym so it wasn't like boxing boxing it was like cardio boxing and i was like this is cool i want to learn more of it but i couldn't afford the membership so i just like w- went to all the kickboxing gyms in toronto i was like hey what can i do i need a membership i can't afford it i'll hand out flyers i'll clean the gym whatever you need like whatever whatever i can do to make this fair and uh, they said yes so that's how i got into muay thai and then i ended up in thailand so like, whatever i'm going to do i'm going to do a lot of it <laughs> and i'm going to do it until i'm the best possible at it like whether I'm Damn. making money at it or not, like if it's my thing, it's my thing. And I'm doing it exclusively. Holy shit. So you're a grinder. So Muay Thai, you end up in Thailand. This is, this is one of the better stories I've ever heard. I think <laughs> you end up in Thailand. Uh, what do you, what do you do there? I lived and uh, lived and trained at a gym in a, a really like shitty part of Bangkok. Okay. Um, and my plan was that it was to be there for a year, but I only made it a couple of months. I found Thailand very isolating. I learned how to speak the language, but it just wasn't like it was me. And there was a couple of um, Americans that came in and out of the gym, but it was just me and like 15-year-old Thai boys at this gym. Right? And they don't really want to talk to me. I'm like... Did you fight them? Oh, yeah. I got my ass kicked on the regular by these kids. <laughs> Holy and shit. So, and that's all we did all day was train, right? You go for a 10 kilometer run in the morning through like smoggy, dirty, tire fire Thailand. And then you come back to the gym when the gym itself is uh, next to a body shop where they spray paint cars all day. Mm-hmm. And there's no, like, there's got this like crappy carpet on top of cement and old equipment. And it's like, it's hot, it's grungy. Uh, and it was, I was, I got in the, I was in the best shape of my life at this point. But I just, I felt isolated. And to get to uh, a 12-step meeting out in Thailand, it was a two and a half hour endeavor. Holy mackerel. And I got to the point where I was like, you know what? If I want to go to Thailand again, it's still going to be there when I get back. But I know that being isolated isn't good for me. It's not yeah. good for my mental health. It's like, I, I got to go home. So I yep. had, to, had to go home, back to, back to kickboxing. Then I lived on the floor of the gym at Toronto in Toronto. Because I'd given up my apartment when I went to Thailand and I hadn't planned to come back. So now I'm living on the floor of a gym next to a nightclub on Bathurst in Toronto. And, Were you uh, able to stay sober then? Yeah. Yeah, I've been sober for 19 years now. Wow. That is... Wow. Yeah, it was a, that was a good time. And then I started fighting. So I started fighting competitively mm-hmm. and I didn't like them either. Okay. So I'm, I've put like five, six years of my life into this. And I get in the ring and I'm terrified. I hate getting hit. And you get hit a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was very like, you find out if you're fight, flight, or freeze pretty quickly. And I'm freeze. Right? I didn't have that kind of fire in the belly, killer instinct. Like when I got hit, I was like, oh, shit. 
this person's mm-hmm. actually like legitimately trying to hurt me. I don't like this. This isn't like, I love training, but I don't like competing. But I like, I had this goal. So I fought until I won a fight. Uh, that was three fights. It took me three fights to win. And that was probably a six month period. And then I got out of the ring after I won. And I was like, winning and losing feel exactly the same. F this, right? Like, gloves off. And I'm like, no more. Now what? And then uh, I got a call weird how the universe says that from one of my previous bosses saying like, Hey, I'm starting a new job and I need somebody to come in, set up our CRM and like teach my reps how to do sales development. Could you do that? And I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess so. And I asked a friend of mine, like, what should I charge for that? Like, I don't know what to do. They're like a hundred dollars an hour. And I go back and I say, it'll be a hundred dollars an hour. And they're like, we budgeted 60. And I'm like, we're good. That's okay. We'll do it. That's no problem. So yeah. then I followed him around for a bit, right? So every job that he, he, he'd leave every year and a half or so, and I would know that I should start getting ready because as soon as he was ready, he was going to pull me over to the next place. So I had these three fantastic sales development um, like contractor jobs in a row yeah. that gave me, uh, that kind of gave me the, like, I want to work for myself. So I don't want to go into work for someone else anymore. Like I can do this job from home or I can like, that's, that's pretty cool. I want to do that. Well, I don't know if this is me stepping out of bounds, but that seems like it's, it seems like in a really weird way that that starts to tie in everything that you had done. Like you gotta be, cause you gotta be in that type of role. I mean, I've done it, but you gotta be self-sufficient. You gotta know how to teach people how to win. And you got to dive in full full throttle, or you don't dive in at all. I mean, you end up with a half-assed sales system. Like, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that, and I mean, he was a good leader as well, and that makes a huge difference, right? Like when I when I make a choice to work for someone or mm-hmm. with someone, I need it to be someone that I can follow, right? I have to be mm-hmm. able to respect them. I have to like, I have to enjoy being around them. I can't work in an environment where I think my boss is an idiot. I, I just, that, that doesn't work for me. Right. I have to see them working and I mm-hmm. have to like kind of want what, what they have. Right. Like, and this, uh, he is kind of the epitome of like, I've never gotten to this face, but he was very calm when he was selling. Like you could never tell if he was winning or losing. He was very, not monotone, just very like calm always and i was like i need some of that in my life i never did get that calm but that was a that was a good three years i liked it uh and then i ended up moving to i met somebody Mm -hmm. that's how it always is and i ended up moving to winnipeg getting married and uh, having a baby all right so you're in winnipeg yeah this story just goes on forever (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, this is great. I, I hope you don't mind telling it because I'm, no, I'm fascinated fine. by all of this and how how it, it's weaving together. And it's just, um, yeah, no, I, I think this is this is wonderful. So, skip parts that you don't want to tell. Like, if so, how about we fast forward then to your fast forward to okay, I'm ready and it's time. I want to start a business. That's not how it happened, though. Okay. All right. Well, it's not how it happened. So (laughs) So I went to Winnipeg and I went back to personal training because my like the gravy train had ended in the other thing and he'd moved on. And I, you know, at that time, I guess I just wasn't really in that space. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready to go out on my own. So I, it's not like I was looking for new stuff. An opportunity came up. A friend of mine had moved to Winnipeg and she's like, Hey, do you mind coming and help, helping me out for six weeks? I need, I need somebody to come uh, live in my condo and take care of the place while I'm gone. Would you mind doing that for me? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. And uh, my lease was up at my place in Toronto. So I got rid of my stuff and moved out to Winnipeg to help her out. And then I met someone. And so I ended up staying in Winnipeg and I went back to personal training. And Winnipeg isn't as big as Toronto. So, you know, you're not driving as far or going, you're not going from like, one side of the city to the other. I found a gym that I liked, a couple of gyms that I liked. I worked at the squash club and I worked at a ladies fitness club. And um, I went back to college. I was kind of just doing my thing. And um, then I, um, I hurt myself 
kickboxing, like kickboxing, okay. not like fighting, but just training. Yeah. I had a back injury. All of a sudden, couldn't couldn't do anything. That's how I ended up. Uh, that's how I ended up starting my business. Right, like I was I was hurt and I couldn't do what I loved anymore. Mm-hmm. And I went to get an MRI, and the, they looked at me and they're like, "Are is it possible that you're pregnant?" I was like, "No, no, no." Well, it turns out, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Twenty plus oh. weeks, so. Oh my goodness! I wasn't just getting fat because I wasn't training compulsively. I was. We were going to have a baby, so my partner and I, my uh, my partner had just quit his job. He yeah. um, he was working for the government, and then he had taken a job playing, teaching kids how to play frisbee, play ultimate frisbee, which was his sport of choice. So he'd taken a job that paid like thirty thousand dollars a year, which was a, you know a significant pay cut. We weren't expecting to have a baby. And I was like, I don't care. Take your nonprofit job. As long as we can pay our mortgage, I don't care what kind of job you have. So, you know, we both had these kind of like $30,000 a year jobs. And now I had no job and no ability to work for the next little while. I was like, what am I going to do? Like, What am I good at? What can I do? And it's like, I'm pretty good at cold calling. I bet somebody would pay me to make their cold calls. So I got the paper out and I started going through the newspaper and started calling people and asking them if they needed someone to make their cold calls for them and schedule sales appointments. And I just kept doing that until someone said yes. And uh, that's how my business started. Like it wasn't a, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. It was like, I accidentally stumbled into this thing that people would pay me to do from my house. So I'm like, I got my baby and the thing. And then I got the phone up against my ear and I'm like, telemarketing for anybody who'll pay me to do it and then i ran out of bandwidth so i was like okay well now i like what do i do now and then i called my sister and i'm like tracy i need you to come work with me she's like no f you i'm not going to do that (laughs) so about a year into like asking her over and over again to come and work with me she agreed to and in the meantime, I had cold called an organization called the Eureka Project, which was the technology uh, incubator and accelerator at the University of Manitoba, which I didn't know mm-hmm. at the time, right? If it was in the paper, I called it. I didn't research it. I didn't try to figure out what they did. I just called them. You're looking for someone to do this. I do this. Can I do it for you? And I came in and I interviewed. They're like, we have a better offer. Why don't you come build us a call center? And oh, they... My. They offered me a significant salary to come in and do this thing that I was trying to do on my own anyway. Like, and I was like, at that time, I couldn't imagine making that much money, right? Like, I had to keep yeah. a straight face when they made the offer. And I'm like, I'll think about it. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> right? at this point, like, yeah, I'd made a little bit of money in my life, but I was pretty much a minimum wage kid at that point, right? I'm making 15, 20 bucks an hour, and I'm fine with it. And I'm happy, I'm productive, I'm, I'm not really thinking about this glorious career in sales anymore. Yeah. And uh, then it just kind of took off from there. Right? My sister came to join me now that, now that I was working like, for a real business in a, you know, a real office. Uh, my sister agreed that she would come work with me. And I built them a, uh, oh, a seven-figure call center. Yeah. And uh, my job was to do what I would describe as organic market validation. So startups would come into the incubator and they would pay market research companies pretty much to spit out reports that would say whatever they wanted them to say. Mm -hmm. And then they would kind of give me their pitch deck and it would be my job to go and call the market and figure out whether or not their hypothesis had any legs. So I was not very popular at the University of Manitoba. Right, people's ideas, like people would forget very important questions like, would you pay an additional $100 a month to have this service? Right. And people are like, no, a pencil works fine. Thanks. We're good. Yeah. Right. Like, so it was a lot of that. And then as um, that started slowing down, because the government changed its funding. So we started spinning up uh, technology companies. We started calling technology companies and doing sales development for them. And then I identified this market uh, managed service provider niche. And we, we ended up building 
a practice focused on managed service providers while in tandem doing this other thing. And then the government shut all the funding down for, for the accelerator that I was working at. And they decided to focus on a different part of the process. So before it was acceleration, that was going to be all pre-capitalization. So they were going to work with companies that were getting grants to develop MVPs versus prove the MVPs out. And they're mm-hmm. like, but don't worry, you can keep the business that you built. Like we, you can keep the, like, we're not going to do anything with this. Like, why don't you keep, you know, these six clients that you have that, you know, you signed up and you can, we'll incubate you here, right? Like you go back to running your business. The one that you were running before you came to work here, I had a phenomenal mentor there and and he pulled a lot of strings to do this for me, I'm sure. And they're like, you can have an office, you can have access to our accounting team and our legal team, and you can have a fractional CEO and gave me all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay, why not? And a year later, we were uh, a seven figure business and the 25th fastest growing company in Canada. Ta-da! Okay, I, holy <laughs> shnikes. I, uh, that is awesome. That's just about, I love, I love the cold call. I love just being able to get on the phone and hammer and figure out what the heck I'm going to do. I have such high respect. And you just took that to the, the nth level. I thought I had experience in this. You just took this to the nth level. So you, you have this cold call business, seventh your seven figures. Where do you go from there? Like what your Las Vegas, baby, Las Vegas. All right. (laughs) So we started going after the companies that were focused on the managed services space. Okay. And I had this moment where we were like, wait a minute. These, these small businesses are great, right? None of them know how to sell. It's a gold mine. Mm-hmm. And they've got 44,000 of them in North America alone. Only 6,000 of them have managed to make it over $2 million in annual recurring revenue. They all have sales challenges and we're going to help them. And then yeah. I had this moment at a trade show where I was like, wait a minute. If the MSPs sell more, the vendors make more and the vendors already have money. We're doing this wrong. This is not like the MSPs are the product. We've got yeah. this huge database that we've built over the last few years, calling into every managed service provider we could find, trying to convince them to buy from us. What if we use that database to convince them to buy from them? And so we started trying to attract the, the, what we call the vendor business, right? The larger companies that are trying to build North American reseller partner channels. Mm-hmm. And we had this opportunity. Uh, we did a couple of little projects for, we did a project for ABG. And then the person that we reported to there moved on to a different role. And they um, called us up one day and they were like, hey, do you think you could do a project like this? And I was like, well, who's it for? And she said, well, I can't tell you. It's like, all right, well, what do they sell? And she's like, I can't tell you that either. But we need 100 meetings a month, every month for the next year. And I was um, doing the math and I'm like, well, it's probably like $500 a meeting. We only get paid if the meeting sits. So factor in a 20%. No, I'm doing the math. And I was like, holy, this is the biggest contract that we've ever had. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even sure we could do it at the time. But I was like, yeah, of course we could do it. No problem. So we signed the contract. The retainer is in. And I remember the day that happened. My sister and I were in Orlando. We were going to a trade show and we got the call and like we pulled over to the side of the road and we're jumping up and down. Like we've just doubled our business overnight. Right? Like I'm, I'm crying. She's crying. We're screaming. We're all like amazing. And then the, we get the call and they're like, okay, well, we want to come and tour your call center. And I was like, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> call center. Yeah. Okay. Um, when? So they have assumed that we have a North American, like a, a U.S. call center. We are a Canadian distributed call center at this point, but I'm not letting this get in the way of us winning this business. So I'm like, yeah, no problem. Two weeks. All right. I'll get the address to you. I get off the phone. And I'm like, Tracy, we have to go start a business in the U.S. and we have to do it wow. today. And she's like, all right, well, where? And I'm like, well, we can only fly direct to two cities from our city like so we're going to orlando or going to las vegas she's like vegas obviously 
So we fly to Las Vegas and we get one of those like shared office spaces in the downtown project. And we get ourselves 10 Chromebooks and we buy 10 cubicles and we buy 10 office chairs and we hire 10 people off Craigslist. Um, they come in a week and a half later to come tour the place. And I was like, anybody here says it's their first day, you're all fired. Right, we're using Wi-Fi and Chromebooks to run this call center. And they come in, they train everybody. Like we've started this, like, I don't have a social security, like everything is the worst, right? Like we have no idea how we're going to keep, like whether or not this is going to like, but we're going to do this contract at least. Yeah. And that's, and that was the B. And then we won Datto and Datto was Connecticut's first unicorn. And we worked with them for four years at about the same volume that we'd worked with this organization. We won open DNS around the same amount of volume, right? So the company just kept growing and we just kept adding people, right? We really didn't have, we had the, we had the drive, right? What, what held us back was we didn't have any business education. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I like all of a sudden I'm like a $15 an hour kickboxer running an international business, an international like seven figure business. I've only been doing this for like three years and the money just keeps falling on me. And I was like, we should spend this money. This is not going to last forever. <laughs> that was not the right choice. I don't yes. recommend that choice. I didn't really <laughs> learn how to manage a business or my books or anything until about year five, but it was a good time. Wow. What a heck of a ride. What a heck yeah. of a this is, that is, that is absolutely. Um, yeah. I, Presence of a badass. This is uh, <laughs> this is phenomenal. And so you end up. So COVID hits. You end up selling that business. I had to. Yeah, I had to sell the business. Uh, we couldn't staff. So all of our employees, okay. um, very much like myself, right? I would describe them as second chance employees. Nobody really ends up in telemarketing. Like you end up in telemarketing. I guess is mm -hmm. a better way to put it. Like nobody daydreams about their glamorous telemarketing career. We got the people that would work for us. That's who we had. That was our option. So we had to make telemarketing interesting. We had to make it exciting. We had to figure out how to attract people and keep people. And uh, we did that through, um, through implementing EOS in our business. So okay. previously, it was just like, can you pick up a phone? You're hired. Yep. And then we just kind of hoped for the best, right? And we tried to develop training. And you know, by this time, we had a small executive team and we had, you know, 6,000 square feet in Las Vegas. And we had a pretty reliable team, you know, reliable for the people we had access to. Mm -hmm. And what, one of the things that we noticed was it didn't matter what we were paying. The same people applied, right? So whether we paid $12 an hour or $25 an hour, we got the exact same applicant pool. So you get the people that you get, not the people that you want. Telemarketing is nobody's first choice. And if you don't hire them immediately, they take another job. Yeah. So if they can find anything else, they'll take that. So we had to like tell this story about what life looks like once you become good at telemarketing. And in my story, like we just talked about it, right? So I was able to stand up in front of new hires, every class of new hires and tell that story, that exact story, right? I was an alcoholic. I was a telemarketer. Now I own a telemarketing company. I own two telemarketing companies. And you can too. Right. Let's do this. Let's do this together. Let's all do this. And, and the, the, one of the people that started working for me, she was about 90. She worked for, she was about 90 days clean when she came to work for us. Mm -hmm. She bought my second, like she bought my second business like a year ago, like four and a half years. She's running a million dollar business and she buys mine to boot. Right. That is the legacy that I want to leave. And she's doing the same thing for her team now. Like it's a ripple effect thing. So we brought in people. If you wanted to work, we had a job for you. And we would just, here's how you do it. And if you work hard, you'll make money. And the ones that made money stayed and the ones that didn't left. And then, you know, we, I was a pretty soft, like I paid for people's apartments. They never came back to work the next day. Like I was definitely a soft touch, but mm -hmm. like, there are people that started working for me who were on food stamps, who were homeless, 
they have equity in some of the fastest growing software companies in North America now. Like when they when they flip, these people won't have to work again if they don't want to. And they were $12 an hour telemarketers like not five years ago. It's phenomenal. I'm get, I'm seriously getting choked up. Like, I'm trying not to myself. Yeah, no, I, I'm getting choked up. And this is, I could likely talk to you for the next three days about this stuff because it's so, I'm so impressed. I'm just so. Um, We're going to have to edit. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty damn humbled uh, just to be on the call with you and to be on the podcast. Like this is great work. Great freaking work. And I mean, they did the work. I just provided a place that they could do the work if they wanted to. That's a bit of a cop out. You got to accept the fact that you, you got to accept the fact that you did a whole hell of a lot of work. And uh, your drive is, is something that I am, I'm just blown away by. And uh, I didn't know what I, I, I didn't know what we were getting into in the podcast today. And I'm just, I want to tell you how thankful I am for you sharing your story. Oh, thanks, um, Paul. No, it, it really is. It's really big. And, you now have, I'm going to fast forward because I'm going to fast forward to how people get in touch with you now, what you're doing now, because I think we want to, I want to end on that. Um, oh, we missed all of our five questions. Too. <laughs> we did. We missed them all. Can't, we got to have you back. I'll have you back on and we'll uh, actually, you know, it'll be fun is I'll have, can I have you and Ian back together? Would that be dynamic? Would that be fun? Well, Ian and I have decided that we are going to run different businesses. So you're you hearing are? it here first. We are. So no way. Richardson and Richardson has gone really well. Uh, and Ian loves consulting. Yeah. He's in his genius zone there. I do not love consulting. I uh, I miss the grind. Right? I want to be yeah. back doing what I was doing. But I don't think that telemarketing is where I want to be now. So I I thought long and hard about like, well, how is, how is sales changing? How is the industry changing? Mm-hmm. Like this happened during the pandemic. Like what is my pivot? If I can't get people to come to work to be telemarketers anymore, what am I going to do next? So I started thinking about like, what, what's going to be like, how are we going to get to people now? Everyone's moving home. No one's answering their phones because their phones are at the office and we haven't quite figured out the rest of it yet. Like this was a very early, early on thing. And I thought like, okay, well, people are going to start like content is going to be king. Mm-hmm. And we'd already kind of started using that in our own business. And I really enjoy, I liked creating content. I like talking to people. I like, I like doing podcasts. And when I started my podcast, I realized that everybody asked to be on my podcast says yes. Mm-hmm. Why isn't everybody creating content with their prospects instead of for their prospects? And that's how Crucial came to be. So my new business is called Crucial, C-R-O-O-C-I-A-L.com. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to connect prospects, named accounts with businesses so that they can create the content that their prospects want to consume instead of spending thousands trying to figure out what the right message is. Like, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to call prospects and ask them. Hey, you want to contribute a quote to this blog post that I'm writing? Hey, you want to do a webinar with me? Hey, are you interested in being on my podcast? We're going to begin relationships like that. And those people are going to share that content. They're going to read it. They're going to share it. And odds are, if I'm trying to get Paul Fuller to come on my podcast, after he is on my podcast, Mm -hmm. he's going to share that podcast with other people that look just like Paul Fuller. He's going to open up whole new social circles for me. Amen. No, that's super exciting. I Well, Carrie, one of the reasons you are on my podcast is this exact same strategy. So we're hitting on the same thing because I get to have I get to have so much fun having all my partners on here and my partner's clients and hey, brilliant. Did you want to do all the work afterwards? No. Brilliant. Oh, no, no. I, like, no. I went through three no, different podcast no, production no, no. companies. I like like this part. This is uh, the fun part. And that's what, like, that's all the owners will have to do now. That's all the business owners will have to do. And I want to focus on the smaller business market, right? I I like working with enterprise companies, but like being that extra million dollars they made this year is not that big of a deal. But if I can work with a small business and add a million dollars to their $4 million business, Mm -hmm. that's a big deal. That's That's life changing. 
that's life changing. So how do people get in touch with you uh, around crucial or around anything you're doing? Uh, you can email me at Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, at Crucial, C-R-O-O-C-I-A-L.com. And stay tuned. Our website's going to launch this week. I'm pretty excited about it. So this is a great timing. Awesome. Well, we'll get this up and we will get this up and out as soon as we can to make sure that we support that. Thank you for breaking it, breaking it with us. And uh, like I said, I'm honored. It was an awesome awesome time. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, it was a pleasure. I hope uh, it helps people out there who are thinking like, wow, I'm in this dead end sales job. What's my life going to look like? It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Keep shining bright, Carrie. You're doing a really good job of it. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the art and science of complex sales. This podcast is sponsored by Membrane and our partners from around the globe. Here at Membrane, we believe that B2B sales is at a crossroads. Due to decades of quantity-based prospecting, information overload, and really a shift towards efficiency over service and pitching over leadership in sales, customers are saying enough is enough. They're tuning out average performers and choosing to take most of the buying journey on their own. This results in up and down sales results, forecasts that are all over the place, and salespeople that are half committed due to the fact that they're having poor results and they have an inability to truly connect with customers. We believe the road successful companies are taking to combat this is threefold. Number one, training to create leaders and executives across all areas of the team with strong habits and sales methodologies that bring value. Number two, technology. Technology that focuses and helps a salesperson succeed and reinforces great habits rather than wasting their time on filling out fields for reporting or wasting their time on spamming customers that have no interest in ever buying. Third, talent. And I'm talking about talent that's empowered and emboldened to make a difference for their customers and their companies. So where are you on that journey? Membrane and our network of partners across the globe are here to help and to elevate the sales profession. We streamline critical technology by combining CRM, training and enablement, and more into one seamless platform. We drive best-in-class methodologies through our partners. They provide the top thought leadership methodologies and resources from across the globe. And our collective efforts are dedicated to recruiting, training, coaching, and empowering, and measuring the habits of the top teams in the world to ensure success. Join us at Membrane.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening.